Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Jeremy Hunt, the former foreign secretary, former health secretary, current chair of the Health and Social Care Committee, where he's been instrumental in holding the government to account over their handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, in 2019, almost became prime minister, but was defeated at the final hurdle by Boris Johnson, the man who is currently at time of recording prime minister. Um, and on Boris Johnson. Don't forget you can email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with your encounters with politicians, particularly if they're in a strange location or if the encounter itself was a bit odd. Jonathan's been in touch and said about 12 years ago I was working in the House of Commons for an MP. At the time, Boris Johnson was Mayor of London. One day he came to Portcullis House to have a meeting with my MP and I had to greet him from reception and bring him up to the office. My MP was running late. Oh, I'm already annoyed for something that happened 12 years ago. Politicians, on the whole, do run late, and it's a terrible trait. And I think it's because they don't like to say, sorry, this meeting has to end. They like to make that person feel special. The problem is they end up making the next person really annoyed. That sets in a chain of domino effect where you're only pleasing the person at the start of the day. Anyway, whilst we were waiting... BJ noticed a book on my desk. It was one of Ian Dale's collection of counterfactual histories. Jonathan, I already know which one you're going to say, and not because I've read the email in advance. This one was entitled, Prime Minister Boris and Other Things That Never Happened. <laughs> we had a conversation about the accuracy of this title, which concluded with me telling him that, quote, you never know, you could become Prime Minister one day. He grinned and responded by saying, yup, you never knew. Wow, I like to think I got something of a scoop, but as a diligent researcher, I didn't tell anyone other than my boss. Until now, of course. Well, Jonathan, thank you for that global exclusive. Boris Johnson, of course, very much in the news. Now, this episode was recorded live at the Duchess Theatre on Monday, the 6th of December. So I do a bit of stand-up at the start about the <laughs> scandal over the Christmas party. But obviously... In the two days since this was recorded, that story has got a heck of a lot bigger. And while I'm recording this now, Allegra Stratton has just resigned. So, I mean, in a way, I feel like I was done out of some wonderful material that I could have done jokes about. But anyway, <laughs> that's not the biggest part of the story, of course. Um, I, of course, did some jokes about what the story was at the time. And that's how the show opens. He uh, has been asked a lot of questions about his Christmas party last year. Apparently, uh, I mean, he came up at Prime Minister's Question Time. The fact that people say, oh, England, the, you know, the mother of all parliaments, this, this pinnacle of debate. Uh, Prime Minister's Question Time literally was what happened at last year's Christmas party. <laughs> Can the Prime Minister, that very important, very important, did the party go on beyond midnight? You're like, oh, you just sound jealous, Keir. <laughs> a lot of mates there, were there? Oh, all right, yeah. Well, people getting off with each other, were they? Right, uh, oh, just didn't get an invite. <laughs> sounded really sad about it. Did he or did he not? It's very important. Try to dodge the question. Did he or did he not, Mr. Speaker, get a takeaway? Did he get a Domino's? That's what the country wants to know. <laughs> of course it's relevant. He shouts from a sedentary position. Of course it's relevant. Of course it's relevant. Because it was a Tuesday, Mr. Speaker, and everyone knows it's two for two Tuesday on Domino's. We get two large pizzas, two sides, and a drink of your choice for 1999, Mr. Speaker. Serious questions about procurement of the heartless government. <laughs> Asking questions about it at Prime Minister's questions about last year's Christmas party. Uh, of course, uh, Dominic Raab 
has now been embroiled in this because people are saying it may well have broken the law. And I don't know if you saw him in Andrew Marr yesterday. He said, well, uh, if they did break the law, um, it, it was over a year ago and the police tend not to investigate anything that happened a year ago. <laughs> Is that how it works? <laughs> Officer, I'd like to report a murder. When was it? It was the 5th of December, 2020. Oh! <laughs> You're not going to believe this, mate. <laughs> 24 hours later and we'd have been there like a rapid rain pipe, but it's the old uh, one year and you're in the clear rule, I'm afraid, yeah. Just been made up on the Andrew Marr show. But uh, members of the cabinet may be prosecuted because uh, Boris Johnson apparently wants to change, or Priti Patel does, wants to change the law on middle class, class A drug consumption. And one of the things the government wants to do is remove the passports of middle class drug users. I mean, it's one way to keep Michael Gove in the country. <laughs> I can't help feeling that removing the passports of well-to-do drug users isn't much of a punishment, really. They'll just, there's more money for them to spend on drugs. <laughs> like, well, we got a passport confiscated last Christmas, so uh, we spent three grand on GAC, and we had a great time, yeah. <laughs> had a wonderful time. <laughs> I just love the idea, they call them lifestyle drugs now. You're like, it makes it sound really aspirational. <laughs> yeah, that's the sort of lifestyle we've got now, yeah. Two cars on the drive, foreign holiday kids in a lovely school, and about three grams of MDMA every Saturday. <laughs> Well, Keith did really well, didn't you, Keith? He doesn't like to shop, but he did very well during lockdown, and he's been made a partner. And uh, instead of going abroad, we just thought we'd get a kilo of cocaine. And, uh, I mean, it got pretty wild, actually. We killed a guy, but um, luckily it was a year and a half ago, so we're both in the clear. But it's the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle. Yeah, steady on now. He, uh, such a great voice, isn't he, Lindsay Hall? But apparently, they've done swabs of certain parliamentary officers. 13 out of 14 places they swabbed in Parliament found traces of cocaine. Uh, and they reckon there's a group of MPs that are doing it, and he wants to crack down on it. And he's so old-fashioned, he does feel like someone from Coronation Street. The, the telling off he would give an MP would be so old-fashioned... It would be great. Hey, look, steady on now. Look, I know you're on it. I know you're on the old, uh, you know, party powder. Yeah. I like a party, but you don't need the powder. You know what I mean? Oh, you're on the loopy juice. You think you're the bee's knees, pal. You know what I mean? I've seen people lose it, mate. I've seen people lose it. You know, sat there in a pool of their own mess, gibbering away to themselves incoherently, you know. But be warned, not everyone gets to become Prime Minister. <laughs> Uh, Labour have had a reshuffle. Keir Starmer's reshuffled his front bench and actually brought in a revelation. People are actually quite good. <laughs> it's a real break with Labour Party tradition. It's uh, a real factional attack on uh, thick people. <laughs> Hang on a minute. We're used to having a thick shadow cabinet. What's going on here? We used to have a leader who was thick, leading people who were thick, employing people who were thick. I smell it. Just incredible. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. West Streeting, Peter Carl, Yvette Cooper, Pat McFadden, they've all been Labour MPs for a bit. They could have used them before now. That was just it's the idea of going, maybe we should actually... Uh, should we just use the good ones? Should we try using the good ones? Like Norwich going, oh, shit, you know we signed Messi and Ronaldo. Should we? I mean, we are bottom of the league, but I don't know, that's kind of our thing. Which is kind of the Labour mindset, it seems. Really funny. John McDonnell said... Um, these are Blairite. Firstly, news to Yvette Cooper that she's a Blairite. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, he said, this is, uh, this is the ghost of Christmas past, not the ghost of Christmas future. And you think, if there's anyone in politics who really needs to be visited by three ghosts, <laughs> it's John McDonnell. 
I would actually love to know what the hard left narrative on ghosts is in the after. I'd love to know Richard Bergen's take on what a, on what a ghost is. Ghosts are capitalist imperialist constructs. They are a factional attack on the land of the living by the land of the dead and they're funded by Israel. Cat <laughs> Smith, one of the few Corbynites left, this is amazing, resigned from the shadow cabinet because there weren't enough left-wing people in it. Yeah, and you've ensured there's one less. That's one of the stupidest reasons. She also said, as a, as a, as a Labour MP for a red wool seat, I'm also resigning because we've not made enough progress on proportional representation. Yeah, that hot button red wall issue. People in Mansfield, I've got 300 working men here. Proud men. They're ready to work, but what they really want is a single transferable vote system, a sort of dehont method. As long as there's a constituency element, we're open to a top-up system. But they're good men. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to take a break now. Thank you all for coming, by the way. I know at the moment that uh, going out and being in events is not uh, something for everyone, so it means a great deal that so many of you come this evening. We have a very special guest after the interval, someone that I've interviewed on the show before, but never in front of a live audience. Uh, I'm a great admirer of his. He's one of the most talented politicians in the country, Jeremy Hunt. So that's very exciting. I'm sure you were aware that's what you were... What, Jeremy Hunt? I thought I was getting Anthony Scaramucci. Did anyone come to the Scaramucci night? Yeah! That, if you weren't here for the Scaramucci night, one of the most incredible things, because very heartfelt man. I think a lot of people have underestimated him. But he was heartfelt whilst simultaneously being like one of the Sopranos. <laughs> I worked for Trump because my dad was blue collar. I grew up in New Jersey. And he was talking to those people. Rust Belt, the Democrats hadn't spoken to those people for two generations. And that's why I got involved. But I said to him, if you fuck this up, you small dick motherfucker, I'll smash you in the face. <laughs> what a guy. So I think the second half today might be slightly different, is what I'm saying to you. But let's see. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very excited about tonight's guest. He stood against the current Prime Minister just a couple of years ago and how different... History would have been had he won. Uh, he was uh, a very respected foreign secretary, very respected health secretary, and is now a highly respected chair of the Commons Health and Social Care Committee. One of the most important people in holding this government to account fearlessly for the way that they have handled COVID in a fair and balanced way. He is one of the biggest stars in British politics. Please give a huge welcome to Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. And w what drink have you got there? Uh, I am so I'm a Surrey, South West Surrey MP, and this is the ultimate Surrey drink, a G&T. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And is it, uh, is it a strong one? You've made it strong. I'm wondering <laughs> what the plan is. <laughs> well, talking of plans and parties and drinks, are you, do you have the mistletoe up in the Hunt House? <laughs> It's going up next Saturday. <laughs> next Saturday. So, uh, yes, but uh, only wife and daughters are going to get the kisses. <laughs> I've been listening to Therese Coffee. Because <laughs> it does... I mean, obviously, in the age in which we live, they're going to ask all the ministers and people are just going to think on the spot and stuff like that. But as a former health secretary and now chair of the Health Select Committee, uh, is there a risk to kissing people under the mistletoe? Well, the actual answer to that question is we just don't know. And that, that is the truth. We are in this funny period now where there's this horrible, potentially horrible new variant that is actually potentially harmless. 
And so we're going to find out probably in about a week's time because they actually have to grow this thing. They're growing it in a lab in, in Porton Down at the moment. And then they're kind of testing out uh, what it does under certain conditions. So they've pretty much worked out that it's likely to be a lot more transmissible, but they don't know if it's more likely to send you to hospital. So we're in that kind of waiting period. And, you know, uh, government ministers have caused us a lot of enjoyment by speculating about what the mistletoe answer will be, but we will probably know the answer by the time you do your next show. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. I mean, even just your answer there, I haven't heard a government minister say that, and that is way more interesting, way more informative... I'd better drink this before I <laughs> register any emotion about what you're saying. But, like, it's almost like a really good football pundit. You know when they tell you the stuff that you can't see? When they say, oh, they're playing five in midfield. But I didn't know they were using Porton Down to, to grow it and test it. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a reason why a government minister wouldn't tell us that? Or are they just not as good as you? <laughs> it, uh, no one. <laughs> OK, here we go. It's as good as you. Uh, look, you cannot compare. Even my most difficult moments, you can't compare to what it's like you know, being health secretary in a pandemic. So it is genuinely very difficult. Um, and, um, you know, if I'd been doing the job, I'm sure I'd have made mistakes, but probably different ones is, is the honest truth. Um, but communication is really hard. And that has been, I think, one of the, the difficult things. I think the other thing is that, um, we ha- you know, Rumsfeld had his famous saying, unknown unknowns. Yes. There are so many known unknowns in a pandemic, and we're right in the middle of that period now. Um, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I think the most likely outcome is that uh, this isn't going to set us back to square one. Um, we're probably slightly more likely to get it, but not much more likely to go into hospital. That's what I think is the most likely outcome, but we'll just have to see. That's an Omicron exclusive. That's <laughs> <laughs> from the man who does not know. <laughs> Obviously, governments make mistakes because they're individuals and I think, on the whole, the public are pretty balanced about things that people get right and wrong. I mean, were you aware there was a CCTV camera in the Secretary of State for Health's office? (laughs) Well, um, do you know, I... I actually moved to that office. So the Department of Health moved from Richmond House to Victoria Street um, in my time. And so that camera was, was put up there. And, um, <laughs> and I honestly didn't have any idea uh, where it was pointed. But I think, I have to say, for poor old Matt's point of view, it was very, very bad luck. Because if it was someone who was trying to catch him out doing some mischief, that camera would have been pointed at the sofa. But it was actually pointed at the door. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, that, was, that was bad luck. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I think we have to say in Matt's case, um, you know, he did order 400 million doses of vaccine before we knew whether it worked or not. And there were some low points, but that was definitely one of the high points in terms of the, our overall response to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, when you were watching it, I mean, even... Uh, not the CCTV footage. Not <laughs> 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 the news, but it's all happening. There must be part of you that thinks, oh, you know, I've got experience being Secretary of State for Health. There's, there's expertise and the experience that I could bring. You're probably slightly judging yourself against what the incumbent's doing. At any point, did you think, oh, actually, I, I wish I was in government at a time like this? Um, there are times. I mean, you're probably going to ask me about the leadership campaign. And yeah. uh, to my 
great surprise, uh, in the middle of that campaign, I found myself really wanting to do the job. And, you know, I entered it <laughs> thinking, you must be mad to want to do this job. And I, I found I had that hunger inside me. Um, but I think what I do feel now I'm on the back benches, and, and happily so, is that I feel a certain tolerance to mistakes that people make, <laughs> mainly because I made so many. I mean, you know, I, my wife's going to be coming a bit later, um, uh, <laughs> just before she arrives, because she hasn't quite arrived. Do you want me to tell you what actually happened when I called my Chinese wife Japanese? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> because that was... So, um, uh, so my first visit to... Uh, is, I don't even have to interview you. This is great. <laughs> I'm trying to sneak this one in. Um, so my first visit as Foreign Secretary to Beijing, and um, obviously, I don't mean Foreign Secretary a month, big moment, very important country, um, and the start of the meetings are always very formal, and there are TV cameras there, and uh, you exchange a few, you will think about it when you've seen it on TV, a few words are exchanged, they're usually pretty meaningless, um, and then... Uh, the cameras go and you have a bit more of a, a substantive discussion. And I really prepared hard because um, I, I really want this meeting to go well. And I'd even thought, well, that moment at the beginning, you need some small talk ready. <laughs> and um, I lived in Japan for two years. I speak Japanese. This Chinese foreign minister uh, was the Chinese ambassador to Japan. He also speaks Japanese. So point number one on the small talk list, we both speak Japanese. Yeah. Point number two, wife Chinese. <laughs> and then the meeting starts, and I glance down at my notes, and it all comes out jumbled up. Wife Japanese. And then I think, no, that isn't a great one. <laughs> but I thought, I'm sure the TV cameras have gone now. And I turn around, and there is this wall of cameras. And, um, of course, because of the time difference, it is actually, at that moment, two o'clock in the morning in the UK... And I'm thinking, I'm afraid this is probably going to be a story. I've got to call my wife and just warn her. Um, and so I'm anxiously waiting and I'm, you know, calling. And, and eventually about 7 o'clock in the morning, UK time, she picks up the phone and goes, Konnichiwa, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she has the best sense of humour. Because, I mean... There, but for the grace of God. I mean, some people would genuinely, as you get in politics now, people go, I mean, this guy's a disgrace. He doesn't know whether his own wife is Chinese or Japanese. I mean, how do you... Oh, obviously, you and your wife are fine about it, but did, did people get in touch? Were people outraged? Um, no, but, I mean, there was sort of... Uh, there was some sort of predictable... Even on the BBC website, there was, like, a, a proper serious story about why this is more than just a harmless gaffe. Um, you know, and people saying this is like calling Jews Nazis. And, you know, there was literally... Oh there was quite God. a lot of that stuff, you know. But the truth is that, actually, the Chinese foreign minister thought it was extremely funny as well. I think he... <laughs> he felt that uh, that probably had sort of uh, lightened the atmosphere in a way. And I had met him once before um, in uh, uh, the Chinese leader. Did you sure it was in China? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Chinese uh, president, Xi, came for a state visit and there was a state banquet at Buckingham Palace and I was health secretary at the time and I sat next to the Chinese foreign minister and I thought, well, I haven't spoken Japanese for 20-odd years, but 
maybe I'll try a few words on, uh, on this person. And um, so I, I tried. He immediately switched straight into Japanese, spoke at 100 miles an hour. I thought, I only know 60% of what he's saying. And I'm I only know the rude words. <laughs> Nodding along. And luckily there was no diplomatic incident. And uh, Prince Edward was sitting on his other side leaned over to me after a few minutes and said, now that is showing off. <laughs> I got away with it. What was it? I mean, obviously the royals get involved in stuff like that for, for trade and things, I think. We sort of have them there. Was he useful, Prince Edward? <laughs> um, you know, I think... I mean, they've, as you said in your uh, spiel, you know, they've had, their, uh, they've had their ups and downs, but there is a, uh, there is a magic about the royal family, and particularly the Queen. I mean, all of us are Republicans in theory, and most of us are monarchists in practice. And so none of us can see remotely the logic of having a hereditary head of state. Until you meet the Queen, or until you're near the Queen, and grown men quake. There is something... (laughs) And, you know, politicians, we, we love the idea of charisma. You know, we admire the kind of the Clintons, the Reagans, the Obamas, people who have obvious charisma. And yet none of us have a patch on the Queen's charisma. It's absolutely incredible. And as you rightly said, she has that effect on Trump. Well, that helps us a lot. So, um, so I think we are, we're pretty lucky. And does, does Boris Johnson have real charisma? <laughs> Boris has... Um, Boris does have an ability to connect. Uh, Boris is, is really misunderstood by the Westminster village because he doesn't play politics by the Probably. normal rules. <laughs> you know, the sort of things that, you know, everyone is looking for, the smoothest performance on Mar or on PMQs or all the kind of boxes that someone like Tony Blair ticked and got sort of 10 out of 10. He, he, he doesn't, but then he does something that, that frankly, people like me... Um, and people of my ilk, centrist politicians of Labour and Conservatives, uh, don't do, which is he connects to people who aren't interested in politics. And um, that is quite an important thing, um, which, you know, if you want to make the case for centrist politics, we've got to learn from that, because are the sort of Cameron, Blair dare I say it, hunt politics, it became to seem very technocratic to a lot of people, very disconnected. And you do need something that, uh, that connects, and you know, we've got to find a way. And how did you find him as an opponent in that leadership contest? I've never had a crossword with Boris. Um, first time I had a proper one-on-one discussion was actually in uh, late 2015, when he wanted me to back him for the leadership against David Cameron. And he said, would I like to go for a drink with him? In, in the West End, so not very far from here. So we had a drink, and I was cycling back down Whitehall to uh, my home in the week in Pimlico, and there was a whole bunch of people blocking Whitehall outside Downing Street. And I got closer and closer, and I could see some NHS banners. I got right up to them, and I thought, I recognise that name. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just at the start of the junior doctor's strike. Oh, man. And luckily I had my bicycle helmet on. <laughs> I just 
calmly turned round <laughs> and cycled off again. No one, no one recognised me. Otherwise, it might have been a very um, uncomfortable occasion. But I, um, anyway, um, to, to answer your question, I think um, Boris has uh, got a quality, which is that everyone leaves meetings with Boris with a smile on their face. He's got a kind of, he's got a light touch. Um, but that job is, I mean, it is, let me put it this way. It is, I can't think of a single prime minister in my lifetime who has ended that job happily. Because basically it puts you under such a microscope that uh, your, your smallest virtues are magnified at the start in the honeymoon period yeah. and then your smallest vices are magnified beyond recognition by the time you leave the job. And uh, I don't think it's anything to do with Boris, but that is just a journey that every single prime minister goes on, um, which in some ways makes me <laughs> quite happy that I'm having this friendly conversation with you now. But was he, did you get frustrated? Because in a way, when you describe his attributes, and they're real, he does connect with people, but that is because he doesn't play by the rules. But Rules are important, because if everyone didn't play by the rules, then we, we would have chaos. And it's, he gambles on the fact that it's only him who's going to behave like that, or, or, or uh, him and his acolytes. Whereas you're playing straight in that leadership contest, you're being sort of calm and rational, and he's making promises all over the place and saying stuff about Brexit and the promises that they made in that referendum. How do you, as a, as a you know, centrist candidate, can they ever beat someone like Boris? Would you... Been able to beat him in five years' time, or is, is he an impossible opponent? I think it's all about timing. And at that moment, the Conservative, we can see in retrospect, and note at the time, the Conservative Party membership were only going to elect a Brexiteer. Um, and I've been, in my current role, I've been very open about some mistakes that uh, Boris and the government made in the first stages of the pandemic. But I think we also, I also have to give him credit that he got this country out of an almighty constitutional hole. I mean, we were really staring in the abyss. And one of the things that got us out of that hole, and I, look, I know lots of people won't agree with this analysis, but I'll say it anyway. One of the things that got out of the hole was getting an 80-seat majority um, because this country and hung parliaments don't mix. Mm. And it was really only getting that 80-seat... And I wouldn't have got that 80-seat majority. Nigel Farage... Uh, who you did a brilliant impression of just now. <laughs> Nigel Farage would not have stood aside for someone who voted Remain in that election in 2019, as he did in all the Conservative seats, which was the reason there was such a big majority. And that, we're not through the woods by any means yet on all the Brexit issues, particularly in Northern Ireland, but, but essentially that majority meant that there was a decisive end to an appalling saga. And that actually was very important for the country. But is there a danger when you're head-to-head -head with Boris Johnson, the last two? I mean, it was, it, it, it was very serious, but it is like the X Factor in some way. You're like, these are the final two. You know, they, one of them's <laughs> going to become Prime Minister. It, it, obviously, really important, but there is a level of entertainment to it. But do you ever think, well, hang on a minute, if he's ahead and he's, doing a, he's campaigning in a particular way, do I need to maybe not out-Boris him, but learn something from the way he's doing it, maybe adopt some of that, or is the best thing just to stick to who you are? Uh, I think you always got to learn from the way people work. But I, the, the lesson I drew, and he's a terrific performer, but the lesson I drew is that part of his success is that he is basically himself. And so 
that comes across and people respect that. And he, you know, he, he doesn't hide the fact that he comes from a very posh background, but he doesn't also, you know, he, he's kind of, there's an act there, of course, but he is basically pretty authentic. And that's what I've tried to do as well. So I thought in that situation, I've just got to be myself. And it's not really my character to, you know, to, to go in for the kill with that really brutal type of politics that you can see. And it wasn't particularly what he did either, but I just, I thought, and I think that was in the end probably why I enjoyed that campaign. Um, if, I, if I had won it, it would have been a surprise. And um, you know, I've still got the spectator actually did a, a mock cover as to what would... Have had what they would have run if I had won. And uh, it, it, they didn't put too much thought into it. I could tell you. They weren't expecting that to happen, but it was very kind of Fraser Nelson to give me a frame goth for it. And what, and what, and what does it say? Was it. Um, it it's, I think the headline is something like uh, The Political Shock of the Decade. And, there's a, and then there's a picture of the door of number 10 with a, a Boris shaped hole. In the middle of it, and then a very spindly me <laughs> climbing through the Boris-shaped hole. So um, it was—it's—it's it's proud in my office. If you ever want to visit that, <laughs> people talk about candidatitis, particularly in by-elections that are unwinnable. Because at some point, and I worked on them, even when it's unwinnable, they go, "Actually, I'm talking to people like that." I think. Did you at any point think you were going to win? I think after the, if you think about the extraordinary sequence of events that happened from the referendum result in 2016 to that point in 2019, and to Trump being elected in America, I didn't think it was likely, but I certainly didn't think it was impossible, and I gave it my all. Because the Andrew Neil, I'm sure people here will remember, the Andrew Neil interviews, where, I can't remember which order he does them in, but it's you and Boris back to yeah. back. There's a bit in his... Where he's talking about Article 50, whatever it was, I can't remember which article it was. He's well, I mean, you know, we would treat Article 15, uh, subsection A. And uh, Andrew goes, but you can't do that because of, uh, he's not Irish, but it was like, it's, uh, <laughs> always different than also, I can't, anyway. Um, he goes, do you know what subsection B says? Morris <laughs> just goes, no. <laughs> and it was just, I was like, I can't figure out whether that's good for him or bad for him. It was great, Sally, but I was like, does that screw him, or do I kind of like him for it? How did you feel when you're watching him do that? I think I thought um, <laughs> I won that particular head-to-head, yeah. um, and it was probably going to not make the blindest bit of difference, because that was the kind of the way the rules of the game are changing. Um, and uh, we have to find a way of connecting with people that goes beyond the Andrew Neil, Nick Robinson, Andrew Marr, Interviews. Um, and Thank you very much. Uh, there we are. <laughs> Stand ready to serve. Um, I mean, talking of service, you were one of the great survivors, really. And one of the things I really liked about David Cameron was, I think one of the things that Blair got wrong was that people just got sacked quick. Whether it's not even scandal related, which is like if they're unpopular, sort of get them out the door. Whereas David Cameron, and the country's benefited from this, is. People stayed in cabinet positions for actually a decent amount of time and they mastered their brief. And it, what it also said was, when people call for resignation, it's actually quite unlikely to happen. But you went through quite a few moments where people probably thought, I mean, you may have thought mm. at any point I could be toast here. Um, when you were culture secretary, that was sort of the first time you were getting that sort of pressure. Did he ever say to you, look, you don't need to worry, I'm not going to fire you? Or did it feel 50-50 at times? Oh, it definitely felt 50-50 at times. And he did, no, he never says anything like that. But he did basically have 
a sense that you needed to leave people in their jobs for at least a couple of years before they were really going to master their brief. And uh, there was a lot of trust built up as a result of that. Um, and I think he... David Cameron was uh, very good in politics at thinking, how do we win the next match? But he was also very happy to leave, for example, Michael Gove to think strategically about schools reform or Ian Duncan Smith to think about welfare reform. I have to say that I came closest to being Prime Minister, uh, not in the leadership campaign, but actually under David Cameron, because um, I went... I was negotiating with George Osborne over the spending round, spending review for health. And George Osborne was being particularly mean. <laughs> and, um, and he's, what, like insulting and, 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 and I, I, was, I was the last department to sign up, and I'd really held out. And basically, um, I thought, before I sign up to this, I'm just going to check with David Cameron, because this is going to be politically tricky. So I went round to number 10. I didn't have an appointment. I went round to number 10 went to his office and said, could I just have a word with the PM? I just want to check before I sign this. And uh, his chief of staff, Ed Llewellyn, said, um, he's actually not here. He's in the constituency, but let me just check his diary. You, you can call him on his mobile and have a chat to him. He said, go into his office. <laughs> so I went into his office. Ed Llewellyn slammed the door shut behind me, and there I was on my own. You know, I was thinking, where's that red phone, the hotline to the White House? Where are the nuclear codes? Let's have a reshuffle. Um, feet on the table. Um, stupidly, stupidly, I forgot to take a selfie. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, that was my. Uh, that was probably closer than I got in 2019. And how do you feel about? Uh, because I know when you were Secretary of State for Health. Obviously, you had the junior doctors thing that you alluded to. Um, obviously, the left wasn't keen. Um, and, the, you, know, you know, what Conservative Health Secretary is ever going to be popular with, with NHS stuff? I, I totally get that. After you left, it's really funny. People go, oh, actually, yeah, he was kind of all right. <laughs> like, well, some people. Some people. <laughs> How do you feel your relationship is with NHS staff now? Well, um, obviously, the junior doctors strike made it very difficult for a period. But I arrived in that job really knowing nothing about health policy. The only speeches I'd given in the House of Commons were constituency health matters, and I didn't really understand anything about how the NHS worked. And I, I have to say, I came away just totally bowled over. I remember there was one moment, so I thought, because I don't really know this organisation very well. I've been an NHS patient, but I've never been very ill. Um, had, my kids are all born on the NHS, but that was about the, the closest I got. So I thought, I'm going to go on the front line and just really try and experience it. And I went to um, Papworth, the heart hospital, and they, and they allowed me the privilege of being in an operating theatre where they very, very slowly stopped someone's heart and then reconnected their um, veins to a kind of Heath Robinson-style contraption that was going to pump the blood around them uh, while they operated on the heart. And they said, come back in half an hour. And half an hour later, they'd finished the operation. And then very slowly, they reconnected the valves and got the heart pumping again. It was the most incredible moment. And there are just incredible moments like that yeah. in, in the NHS. Um, and did you get a selfie? I didn't get a selfie, no. Um, but I, um, I think that... So I, but I also felt that 
if we really want to be true to the founding values of the NHS, then the care has got to be about quality as well as quantity. It can't just be about numbers of people we treat and waiting lists and uh, waiting times. We've got to really be able to say the care we give is the safest, highest quality in the world. And it's not at all bad, but you know, in th things like cancer survival rates, we're about in the middle of the pack, and I think we should be at the top. And I think we can be at the top. Um, it's particularly challenging now after the pandemic. But I came away thinking this is, this is the thing where um, I think we've got to do some big reforms. Because Labour always say that they're going to privatise the NHS. The Tories don't care about the NHS. And I think large elements of the public, perhaps even Conservative voters sometimes think, ah, oh. you know, the NHS feels like a Labour thing. And Labour seems to instinctively get the NHS more than the Tories. I mean, in terms of how you improve the NHS and deliver that care, do you have an ideological view on how it's funded and whether it has to be free at the point of view? So we were convert. Did it, in a way, make you more left-wing about the NHS? I think it made me, if you can call this left-wing, it made me more left-wing in terms of believing very strongly that it needed a lot more funding. Um, and so that was pretty much the last thing I did was negotiate a very big rise um, and having a 10-year plan with, with Theresa May and Philip Hammond. But... Um, I also found myself feeling more strongly than ever that the NHS, the principle that it doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, young or old, city or country, you're going to be able to access great health care. That is something not just very precious, but it's actually something very British. And um, we were actually the sixth country in the world to introduce universal health care. The first was actually good old New Zealand. But the NHS was the most iconic. We were the first big country to do it. And since then, it has actually become part of the definition of a civilised country. And there's only one major country in the world that doesn't do it, and that's America. And, you know, Obama tried to change that, and he, f he found it very, very difficult. So, so I think we all feel very proud of that. But I th that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to change. And if I was going to... If there was one thing which I wish I had made more progress on when I was health secretary looking back, which I started to do, but I, I didn't get nearly as far as I wanted. I think we've got to go back to everyone having their own doctor. I think it's something that would really transform the quality of care. One um, each? Not one each, but, <laughs> but you know, the, what we used to have um, where everyone had their own GP, rather yeah. than being attached to surgery, I think doctors would find that a lot more rewarding. GPs used to have their own lists um, and... Um, Hospital doctors would, you know, be responsible for patients throughout. Even if they had three things wrong, there'd be one doctor who was, who was looking out for you. And I think we've, we've moved away from that. And that's nothing to do with how the NHS is funded. It's just to do with how it's organised. And we could change that back. And I think, you know, general practice, where I tried and failed to increase the number of GPs, um, the magic in general practice is knowing a patient for their whole life and knowing their family and their background and being part of that community and I think we should I think we must find a way of getting back to that because there are doctors in the Conservative Party Dr Liam Fox um, we'd call himself Dr Fox when he was kind of doing health stuff and then the sort of doctors would sort of not get used on other briefs but I always thought you and he you know Fox Hunt would have been a great dream <laughs> would have been a dream ticket for a Tory leadership contest he's a good man he supported, <laughs> he supported me in the leadership campaign actually <laughs> so Culture as well was a big thing. The Olympic. I mean, the, you know, the, it's really odd. You know, when you think 
certain politicians, the things that you remember. The one thing I always felt was when G4S pull out of the... I, I was like, what? Just as a citizen, was that like, how do you solve that where the security for the Olympics cannot be delivered and you find out like a week before or something? That must have been terrifying. Yeah, there were, that was probably the biggest uh, practical scare. Um, yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a tough moment. Um, but we, you know, there were lots of things that, uh, you know, um, I got away with, actually. I mean, there were literally... <laughs> There was a warehouse in London. It was London. over a year ago, so you're in the clear. <laughs> there was a warehouse somewhere in East London which had half a million ponchos in case it rained during the opening ceremony. And just, there was just sitting there. We were trying to think... It was basically, uh, before me, before I became culture secretary, it was extremely well run by Paul Dighton and Seb Coe. The yeah. whole setup was very professional. Tessa Jowler, the late Tessa Jowler, actually deserves a lot of credit for that. And so I sort of saw my job as uh, just working out what could go wrong and trying to make sure we had plans in place. Um, and, uh, but uh, no, it was, a, it was a wonderful, happy moment. So somewhere there's a load of poncho. I mean, in a way, you were kind of storing PPE. <laughs> oh, no. 2012 <laughs> PPE would have been Very great. Very clever, yes, indeed. The boost we could have all needed, yes. some patriotic yes. PPE that's knocking around the sun. So there was... G4S, and then that was basically sort of like, what, so, getting the army? I'll give you one example. So we basically had all these VIP guests who were coming, guests of the UK government, and we wanted to show off. And um, about three weeks before the opening ceremony, I, I suddenly thought, How, these guests, when they arrive, are we just going to make them queue up and go through airport security like everyone else? You know, And you, you know how sort of bureaucratic security people can be and say, yep, that is the plan. And I say, what about, just for example, Christine Lagarde, who is, at the time, was um, head of the International Monetary Fund. So she comes over from Washington and she's, you know, a very important guest of the UK. Are we really going to... Anyway, so after a lot of discussion, negotiation, we set up a VIP route so we could whiz these important people through. The Olympics start... Um, after a couple of days, uh, my office gets a call from the Treasury. Um, Christine Lagarde is coming to the Olympics, and uh, the Chancellor's not available. Wondered if you could escort her to the swimming. I said, absolutely fine. I thought, well, it'll all be very, very smooth. And so we, we arrive at the swimming, me and uh, Lucia, my wife, and Christine Lagarde, whisked through security, everything an absolute dream. And then I say... Um, Christine, would you mind going up to the swimming with, um, with Lucia? Because uh, I've just got to do a quick media round. Um, anyway, um, I do the media round. I come up. We had forgotten to find seats for Christine. Like, <laughs> she was sitting in the disabled seats right at the back. So the very person we planned everything for. Anyway, she was very, very good-natured about it. But uh, I thought you were going to say she ended up on like, the top board or something. Well, we were kind of not quite, but uh, yes. There's a story about the night of the Millennium Dome where all the journalists get stranded. Charlie Fox was the only time Tony Blair ever got angry with anyone, where they have the discussion, should we whisk these VIPs through? And they say, no, no, no. No, they queue up with everyone else. because all these VIPs are going to write about the things. So, like, you do need, particularly with journalists, treat them well, and then the thing gets better reviews. So you think. 
Yes, yes, that's a fair point. I mean, you saw it with COP26 when people are like, that's the... That people go, oh, well, it was a nightmare at the queue. Yeah, it was a nightmare for the journalists, but, you yeah. know, we then get an impression based on the treatment they get. Um, so Christine Lagarde sit in the disabled seats. <laughs> I mean, if that's the limit of what went wrong, that's not bad. No, we actually... Uh, we lost a whole bunch of um, heads of state. I, I was on a coach... <laughs> Uh, with uh, so before the opening ceremony, there was a. By the way, these these are world exclusives, Matt. I have to tell <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, so we had a reception at Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty for the visiting heads of state, uh, right before the opening ceremony, laid on the works, and then they were taken in coaches to Stratford for the opening ceremony. Um, slight problem in the very coach I was in, full of these heads of state. Which is that the driver had put sat nav on, but all the roads were closed, oh, no. and so um, so we got lost in this coach, sort of meandering around East London, uh, and uh, eventually we did get to the the opening ceremony again. That was the one that got away, as far as your profession was concerned. So, I mean, uh, that, that could have gone badly it wrong. It could have gone very badly wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> lots of things. But Team GB saved it for us. I mean, the the I remember talking to um, uh, the Japanese after they won the Tokyo Olympics, which, of course, they had enormous problems with. Um, and I basically said, it just boils down to the national team. If you can get the national team to win lots of medals, it doesn't matter. Everyone will say it's a success. And the Japanese, who had the most difficult Olympics imaginable, exactly that happened for them. People in Japan, in the end, thought it was a success and uh, you know, couldn't have been tougher for them. There are other political risks when you're hosting stuff like that. I mean... George Osborne at the Paralympics when he gets booed. You feel for him. Uh, did you as a politician at that point think, oh, God, you know, I don't want to be anywhere near the podium or on camera or anything like that? Did it kind of scare um, you a bit? I mean, I had my moments. I don't, do you, remember, I don't, you may not remember, but I was uh, ringing a bell... I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> ..on the day of the uh, opening ceremony on, on the deck of HMS Belfast. Yeah. And I you know, got a bit too enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, I won't do an impression, because you might think I'm doing something else. But, um, <laughs> it, and uh, and the, the bell dislodged and went flying into a bunch of brownies. Um, <laughs> Not you know, one of them, One of them had ended up in A&E, on the, or worse, on the, the day of the opening ceremony. That, you know... It's so, such a... Uh, oh, yeah. Because it's a big, heavy bell. It's not like a plastic thing. Yes. That is like steel. Like serious, you know, stuff, yes. So, and it uh, flies off, and that, that could have killed someone. Well, I don't know. It, anyway, it could have done someone some real harm. <laughs> and uh, uh, the sun was shining that day for, for Jay Hunt. I don't think I'd have been health secretary if I'd ended up sending someone to hospital on that day. Oh, man. So then... The other thing that happens when you call your secretary is the, is the Murdoch bid for B-Sky B. And the reason you become culture secretary is because Vince Cable basically gets fired because he said he was going to war with Murdoch and he was going to block it. So I think it's the Treasury Secretary, he's not. So you're basically in a quasi-judicial role where the Secretary of State for Culture is going to decide this thing. And at the time, people were saying, oh, well, you're on Murdoch's side. You know, this guy wants this to go through. I mean, how uh, accurate was that? Well, in a way, it was accurate, um, because as culture secretary, when I was nothing to do with this bid, I had formed a view about what would happen if Murdoch took over Sky, which is actually not my view now. uh, I think I was wrong to have this view at the time. But I I took the view that the newspapers needed modernising, otherwise they were going to die out, and they needed... Basically, newspapers need to merge with TV studios and become uh, platform-neutral, as it were, and I thought this could be a 
a big example of that. And so I'd said that as culture secretary. Yeah. And then Vince had his screw up and I ended up being given responsibility for the bid. And you can imagine how sort of Guardian Easters felt about uh, uh, a culture secretary who already said that he thought it was a good idea in principle having responsibility. So I thought the only thing I can do in that situation is to essentially give the decision to Ofcom, who were independent. And so, um, although it was legally my decision, my mechanism for that was just to ask them to give me an independent report, which I said I'd publish, which would make it politically impossible to do anything other than accept their advice. So actually, the Murdochs were furious with me. All the invitations dried up at that point um, when that happened. Um, but I did have a very, uh, very, very hairy time. In fact, you know, for me personally, it was probably the hairiest time I ever had because I, having appointed... Lord Justice Leveson to do this inquiry. I then had to give evidence myself. And, um, you know, I had swarms of journalists camped outside my house. And, um, and there was a general assumption. Luckily, I was, I was vindicated when the report finally came through. But there was a general assumption that I was, I was going to topple any moment. And everyone wanted to get that last picture of me on the day that I finally resigned. And my abiding memory was that after the, the court hearing, which is, you know big moment, uh, swearing on the Bible, tell the truth, all that sort of stuff. Um, maybe we should try that in Parliament. Quite interesting <laughs> experiment if MP said to do that. But anyway, there we were giving evidence. And uh, they said to me, um, after this thing, you, you really don't want to go home to Pimlico because um, you know, there'll be journalists on your front door and you, you just need to get out. Is there any way you could go? And the only place I could think of were my, was my mum and dad's house in Surrey. So Lucia went down with our two kids to this, uh, this small house in a village in, in Surrey. And I was driven down, threw off the press pack. But I just... Do you remember that programme, Sorry, with Ronnie Corbett? <laughs> I, think I, just, I, just, I just... You're too young. But um, anyway, Ronnie Corbett brilliantly plays this man who never grows up. Um, he's called Timothy. And I just felt like Timothy in Sorry. There I was at the age of 40 going home to mum and dad because there was nowhere else to go being pursued by these journalists. Anyway, oh, luckily, you, They kept your bedroom as it was? <laughs> it was a different house, actually. But, uh, yeah, it was... Uh... So got the Thomas the Tank bedspread and the Popeye pyjamas. <laughs> I mean, that must be... Politicians talk a lot about resilience now in dealing with the pressures, but having that, having the media... It's borderline harassment, really, and it's not nice for your family, and it's not nice for your friends, and you're under this pressure. And how do you deal with that? I think you, everyone has their own way, um, but for me, what I was thinking the whole time was, bloody hell, this would be awful if I was guilty. Um, <laughs> can you imagine how awful? You know, this, if this, because if I was guilty, that would basically be the end. And what an awful way to go, so publicly, and be such a disgrace to your family and your friends and, and all that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, was, I sort of just took the view, I've, I've just got to stick with it and, uh, and it'll be all right. Um, and in my case it was, but I'm, you know, I, I know that for some politicians who are equally innocent of the thing they're accused of, they don't make it through and it's not their own fault. It's not even a lack of resilience. Sometimes it's the Prime Minister who gives up on them and says, actually, I'm sorry, this is getting too damaging and... Um, and you have to go. And, and that's the fundamental difference between politics and most other professions. It's not really a meritocracy. 
Uh, in politics, there's a roller... You know, in most professions, it's sort of 80% talent and hard work and 20% luck. Um, but in politics, it's much more 50-50. And you can be riding high and then come crashing down, like, you know, happened to David Cameron after the Brexit referendum. You can be someone who no one's heard of and you go soaring up to be the next prime minister, like someone like Rishi Sunak might be. You know, it's just full of those surprises. And you, if people ever ask me, you know, what advice would you give going to politics? I would say, just be ready for the roller coaster, and don't don't be too disappointed on the down bits, and don't be too disappointed if, if an up bit doesn't come because it may not. You just have to kind of accept that's how it is. So, can we infer from that that Rishi Sunak would be your choice? I think, uh, look, there are a lot, lots of fantastic candidates now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rishi Sunak would be a very able one. Um, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak is uh, an absolute political phenomenon, but um, things change in politics. I, I'm one of the few people so it would appear in Westminster who think Boris is going to be around for a long time, and I think there's an awful lot uh, that, that can happen in the next few years. So... Uh, um, so he is one of many talents. For the sake of my career, I kind of hope you're right. So that's uh, <laughs> reassured me financially. But um, <laughs> would you never? I'm still again? in the uh, bookies' odds, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't laid some money on me, I'm the outside bet. Okay. Admittedly, quite an outside bet. And, and, and how often do you check? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, every morning. <laughs> <laughs> but you must obviously. You're young. You're talented, you've got profile, you're liked. You'd still be a very strong candidate at any point in the future. I just think um, it's, it's, it's a mugs game to predict what will happen. And um, I, I don't rule out it happening at some stage, uh, but nor do I want to rule it in as the thing that I'm going to hang my, my life on. I mean, in that leadership campaign, I may have told you this actually in the last, last time you interviewed me, but it... Uh, I was sitting, uh, we got flown around the country by helicopter to do all the hustings. They were all done at breakneck speed. And on one of the trips, I asked Conservative Central Office, can I take my uh, wife and son? Because I thought it would be fun for them to ride in a helicopter. And we were flying from Guildford to York, and I sat opposite my nine-year-old son, and I looked at him, and I thought, I have been in the cabinet for every hour you've been alive. And likewise for his two younger sisters... So I thought, if I, if I don't make it this time, actually, I, I do want to enjoy being a dad and being around a bit more. And, um, and I think there is life outside um, the greasy pole. I mean, now, every week, I cycle to school with each of my three kids, and it's, it's just a nice start to the day. So I sort of... I'm, I'm genuinely enjoying myself a bit more than I perhaps thought I would. But you know, the great thing about that is... That makes people want you to be Prime Minister even more. Aha. He's a family man. He cycles ah, his kids. The cunning plan behind the artifice. Yes, you found me out again, Mr Ford. <laughs> so thinking of the Prime Ministers that you served under, would it be fair to say you rubbed along easier with David Cameron than Theresa May? Um, Theresa May um, is... Well, she... You know, she's not famous for small talk. Um, Whereas you are, but uh, well, I'm not sure. But um, she, but but I have to say, she has incredible integrity, and it was a 
privilege to work with her. Um, and she had the most difficult of circumstances with the Hun Parliament, which she was very open about being her, thanks to her own miscalculation. But, you know, she, um, she is someone that I think people who work closely with her grew to like her when you understood that there was basically a very shy person there. Um, David Cameron was much more socially confident um, and in a way more predictable. He was a more sort of, he was the kind of person that I used to work with in, in different spheres. So I think that they both had great qualities. So with Theresa May, there's that reshuffle, the botched reshuffle in January 2018, where she offers you business, you don't want it. You ask to be Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster in the period where we didn't have Deputy Prime Minister. Is that right? Not quite. Um, so I was in... Uh, it, was, it, was the, it was January. It was right at the moment. So most people um, outside the NHS aren't aware, but the NHS, the annual NHS winter crisis, comes at a totally predictable moment. It is always the second week of January. <laughs> and, uh, and it always hits the headlines on the third week of January when the data is reported. But basically it's because in the Christmas period, everyone bottles up their problems and then as soon as the GP surgery is open, they go to the GP, the GP sends them straight to hospital, the hospitals can't cope. And it was right in that moment. And uh, she, um, she did ask me to go to business department and I thought, I just, and it was, we had a, a flu epidemic and it was really the worst winter crisis I'd ever had and I'd been health secretary for five years and I thought this is just not the moment and I thought I just don't it just does not feel right to leave the NHS at this moment and so I I said look I really don't think it's right and I you know there is a massive crisis going on and uh, if you really insist then I I completely understand that but I, I'd want to go to the backbenches and very decently, she said, well, well, I wouldn't want that. Do you mind waiting? And she put me in a side room in Downing Street. And, uh, Has I been at the GP? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Some magazines on the table. <laughs> and then she got Sir Jeremy Haywood to call. She asked Jeremy Haywood. He then called the head of emergency care in the NHS, who's a wonderful lady called Pauline Phillip. He said, Jeremy says it's the wrong time for him to go. Is that right? And uh, I really owe my job to Pauline Phillip because she said, yes, it is totally the wrong time. <laughs> and so uh, Theresa May changed her mind. And uh, she had decided that she was going to make it the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Um, and so I, complete, I got the reputation of being a master negotiator because I, I walked out, she tried to move me, and I came out as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. And it, everyone thought I'd negotiated. I hadn't. Uh, it was just how it was. But how hard is it regardless of the individuals, you're still standing up to the Prime Minister. Does it feel like that when you're in the room, or is it just Theresa and Jeremy? No, it definitely feels like that. And, um, you know, we're all colleagues, and we're all uh, elected in the same party, and everything is first-name terms, except for one person, the <laughs> Prime Minister. And, you know, people still call Boris Prime Minister. Everyone thinks of him as Boris. Um, and it's actually to the extent that it's quite weird when someone stops being Prime Minister, the first time you call them David or Theresa, you feel a bit, should I be saying this? So um, you absolutely do that. I think you can only say to a Prime Minister, I'm not prepared to do what you want, if you're prepared to leave the Cabinet. You have to have 
worked out, and I had worked it out in my mind. I thought I was going to leave the cabinet that day. I'd had an inkling that she wanted to move me, and I was expecting to leave the cabinet. And um, in the room that I was waiting before seeing her, I did actually take a selfie of myself, because <laughs> I thought this is maybe my last time in Downing Street, so uh, I've still got this rather nervous-looking <laughs> selfie. <laughs> You seem pretty zen about the whole thing and philosophical about whether you're in the cabinet or on the back benches. I mean, for a lot of politicians, that is the be-all and end-all. Getting their hands on any bit of extra power each time and not losing any ground. Why do you think... Are you different, or am I misreading? Um, I think now um, I have really... I've got a mission. The reason I um, put my hat in the ring to be chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee is because I really want our NHS to have the highest standards anywhere in the world. Um, I became really focused on... Uh, I'm just going to get a bit uh, serious now. I'm sorry, because we're having such a lovely evening. But I, I, <laughs> I noticed in the NHS that we have about 100... And, this is outside pandemics. We have about 150 avoidable deaths every week, according to uh, proper academic figures. And I was troubled by the fact that everyone accepted this as just normal. And I discovered that this is actually not just the NHS, this is healthcare systems all over the world. And if you think about it, half of us die in hospital, and about 4% of those deaths have a 50% or more chance of being preventable. And, but hospitals don't want to investigate which of those deaths could have been prevented, because they're focusing on the patients who are alive, and that's, that's understandable. But it's become the only industry where the odd death is treated as an inevitability. And I think that's wrong. And I think the NHS should lead the world in changing our approach to healthcare. And so uh, that's what I really want to do. And um, I'm, I'm going to write a book about it next year. And I've been working with the World Health Organization on that theme. They, they think that around the world uh, there are 2.6 million preventable deaths every year. So outside pandemics, it's one of the top ten killers, more than um, malaria, for example. Um, so it's a, so that's what I, I thought, that's what I'm going to do after being Health Secretary. I'm going to use my experience to try and get to the bottom of this issue. Because there are rumours that Matt Hancock might write a book about his time. <laughs> I think it would be very different subject matter <laughs> by the sounds of things. But that sounds like, I mean, that's, that's what people would like, I think, their politicians to do, is to use the benefit of their expertise to solve problems not just kind of, you know, try and convince people of an ideological position. What made you a Conservative? Because sometimes, you know, people might sit here and think, you kind of sound like a New Labour kind of guy. Well, it's a really... Would they be let's, wrong? Let me, let me try and answer... This is a terrible thing to say. Let me try and answer that question honestly. <laughs> um, I was born into a very Conservative family. My dad was a naval officer... Um, Looking back at that, and I had a picture postcard upbringing in a Surrey village. I mean, looking back at that upbringing, it's, it's pretty unlikely I would have been anything other than a, a conservative. Although I did, um, when I went to Oxford, I did dutifully go to the Labour Club and um, I looked a bit at the Lib Dems to just check out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think it was pretty obvious where I was going to come home to. Yeah. And um, I think the... Um, you know, the probably most conservatives think of themselves as pragmatists. And they sort of think, well, actually, you've got to have a strong economy before you can do anything. And so that's the sort of uh, divide. Whereas most Labour people, and I've got lots of left-wing friends, 
fundamentally see the world as an unjust place and they're campaigning for social justice. And so they've got a different starting point and Tories are sort of life's managers and Labour are life's campaigners. And, uh, you know, where I think politics has gone wrong in America and in Britain is when you start thinking the other side is not just misguided but evil. And that is a real cancer in the political system because... If you think the other lot are evil, then there's no point having any political discussion. I mean, why would you have a discussion with someone who's evil? They're just, that's just the way they are. And we've, we've, we've got to move away from that. It's, it's been accentuated by social media. Um, and, you know, one of the nice things about the House of Commons is you do get to know people from other parties um, and you realise that we're all human beings. But I think it's, if we've got it a little bit here, it's got really bad in the US and I think that is just to be uh, boringly foreign secretary about this for a moment it is a worry because America is the benchmark for democracies around the world and it's pretty hard to persuade countries in Africa that they should be democracies if American democracy is broken so we've got to think about this uh, and it's a discussion in the Conservative Party at the moment about I mean, Patterson or Geoffrey Cox or the, the individual conduct of, of, of members of the, of the party you're in. I mean, how, how do you feel about some of the allegations against some of those people? Well, I think the... I, I do actually think it wasn't very um, well-received, but I think Boris is right to say we are not a corrupt country by international standards. I remember... I mean, that's, the, that's the caveat at the end, isn't it? We're not corrupt by international standards. Yeah. But by European standards, maybe... Well, I remember in the expenses scandal, was it, was it Jackie Smith who was on all the front pages of buying a bath plug yeah. on expenses? And you think, uh, how many countries in the world <laughs> would someone be embarrassed for charging 99p to expenses? And so we have that transparency and openness. Um, look, I, no one out there will agree with me for saying this, but I think the strength of our politics when it comes to those kinds of issues is the fact that it self-corrects. And, uh, you know, what uh, Geoffrey Cox did uh, was not against the rules, but was a source of embarrassment. It doesn't feel right. And I think the rules will probably be changed as a result. And so I think that's what's going to happen. Owen Patterson, you know, the right thing happened in the end. I mean, over the last few years, some people left the Conservative Party, people like Anna Subri and Sarah Wollaston, people left the Labour Party... Thinking of where your politics are and where your values are, going through that Brexit experience, were you ever tempted to... Do you ever think, actually, I'm in the wrong party? No. And um, I think uh, for lots of reasons. Um, but um, I am fundamentally not, as far as Britain is concerned, a declinist. <laughs> I think we are an incredible country. We've got an amazing future, amazing potential. Um, you know, four of the world's top ten universities. I mean, OK, best example, actually, I think, of, of Britain's kind of quirkiness. Um, in February last year, just as the pandemic was starting, two boffins on the back of a London bus uh, were, think, were talking about the COVID hitting Lombardy. And they said, I reckon it's going to get here in two weeks. And any moment now, everyone all over the world is going to throw every single medicine at this virus and no one's going to have a clue what works. And they said, why don't we set up a trial? And they set up this thing called the recovery trial. Within a couple of months, they recruited 40,000 NHS patients. 
They tried all the medicines, you know, Trump's favourite, hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> doesn't work. Um, and then they discovered that this, this steroid, dexamethasone, that was available cheaply in every pharmacy in the country, totally safe, worked brilliantly. And that discovery saved a million lives worldwide. A million lives. Because these two guys had had that conversation on the back of a London bus. And in fact, for a long time, we've got quite a few um, treatments now for COVID, but for a long time, two of the three cures used or treatments used around the world were discovered from that Oxford recovery trial. So there's a great brilliance here. And I want us to be a strong, powerful, successful nation and to be a force for good in the world. And I, that, make, that is a vision which I think you find more in the Conservative Party than other parties. It does exist in other parties too, but I think it is more part of our heritage. But did Brexit and the, and the way some people in your party behave around that, did that challenge your faith? Um, I think that there was bad behaviour on all sides. I think what happens in a hung parliament is that MPs, who are often no more than cannon fodder in the lobbies, suddenly realise they have leverage <laughs> and that the Prime Minister needs their support. And this thought occurred in equally dangerous measure to Brexiteer hardliners and to Remainer reversers who wanted to uh, change the result of the referendum, which ended up in the most incredibly dangerous constitutional crisis. I mean, we were in a situation where we could have had Brexit paralysis, Parliament refusing to have an election, Jeremy Corbyn in power, and we'd have been right back to the 1970s as a country. We were really this close to catastrophe. And so I think we are, despite all the gloom and doom in the newspapers, I think it is a big positive that we've moved on from that. Okay, we've got time for a couple of questions from the audience. So if you indicate clearly, uh, let us know your name and uh, if you could ask for a one-sentence question and one-sentence answer, we'll get around as many as we can. For the sake of the podcast, I have to repeat it, which I know becomes slightly t- tedious, but uh, do bear with me. So yes, the gentleman there. Richard's a social worker, he's been a social worker since 2012. Why did you do so little to address the fundamental issues in social care? Why did you ignore it? Well, I did some things. I introduced Ofsted rating for care homes because we had a lot of scandals in care homes and I think that has raised the standards of care in care homes. I introduced a care certificate, which I think has been very important for the social care workforce. When I arrived, the social care budget was being cut. When I left it started to rise. But what I didn't do was the big transformational change that that sector needs. And what I wanted to do was a 10-year plan for the social care sector with a big vision as to how we were going to get from A to B um, that was going to deal with things like how we get 600,000 more people into the workforce, which is what we're going to need by 2030, uh, that dealt with really fundamental questions like, do we want care homes going forward, you know, there are two routes we can go. America and Canada have gone for retirement villages, uh, which are very popular and very attractive. Sounds great. Denmark has said we don't want any care homes at all, and we're going to support everyone going forward to live at home. And 
we need to answer those strategic questions. And I, I secured that 10-year plan for the NHS um, and a five-year funding settlement, which is, I think, very beneficial for the NHS. I, I tried and was not successful for social care. So I, I accept the premise of your point that I could have done more, um, but um, it was not that I didn't want to. I did try. So it was basically Theresa May's fault? No, it wasn't, it wasn't Theresa May's fault. Um, I, the NHS 10-year plan was agreed in July of 2018, uh, or announced in July of 2018. Um, I moved to the Foreign Office. Theresa May's government fell. We had Brexit. We had a general election. There were a few other things uh, which meant that... Um, but by the way, I'm not satisfied with what we've had announced so far. Um, I want Boris and Saj to go further than they have, and I've said so publicly. I think, we've, I think we need more ambition when it comes to the social care sector. And do you still talk to him directly? Yes, we, um, we have exchanges, uh, friendly exchanges. Um, no, uh, you know, uh, yeah, friendly exchanges. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And then what, like phone, WhatsApp? Uh, WhatsApp. Okay. And um, does he, what's he like on WhatsApp? Does he, is he like full sentences or is it like emojis? Um, it's, uh, no, it's, it's short sentences. He's a busy guy. Um, but uh, recognisably Boris. <laughs> um, retirement villages sound good. So what's that? Just like retirement homes, but with like services and shops and things? Um, well, there are different types. But, um, I mean, in America, they, they seem to have an amazing time parting away. But, I mean, the, the, the kind of retirement villages that interest me are what they have in Holland. There's a place called Hogaway. Which is, a, which is a kind of retirement village for people with dementia. And they can go out shopping and forget to pay, and it doesn't matter, and they just live the most normal possible independent life with all that care that they might need there, but invisibly there. And wow. it's just a great, great... And that's the kind of innovation which I think we could do brilliantly here, and I, yeah. I think... We need to create the space for that kind of innovation. It'd be great for people without dementia, wouldn't it? That's, that's, <laughs> why, why can't we all have it? Um, I think I saw a hand up over... Uh, yes, down here. Has this administration fundamentally broken the relationship with the civil service? I don't think it's fundamentally broken it. Um, I don't think it's as good as it should be. And I... I think it's a real mistake to blame civil servants uh, when things go wrong. Um, I found the civil servants were incredibly keen to fulfil ministers' wishes. Uh, actually, I found the problem with civil servants was they were too keen to do what we wanted. Um, I wanted civil servants who would tell me something was a balmy idea and, uh, and stop me creating a mess. And I... I did ask civil servants to call me by my first name, not because I was trying to be over-familiar, but I just wanted to have a kind of relationship where they f would feel comfortable uh, telling me uh, that something was a, a stupid mistake. And so I think that... Uh, Do any examples spring to mind? Yeah. Um, so probably... Um, this is sort of getting to health, techie health policy, but probably one of the, the most important reforms I did was introduce Ofsted rating for hospitals. So every hospital is graded outstanding, good, requires improvement or poor. It's a big change. Did it after mid-staffs. I wanted an early warning system to make sure that we didn't have a mid-staffs. But it was... People were very worried about it because a hospital has 6,000 employees, 
half a billion quid's worth of turnover. Can you really sum it up in one word um, in the way you do for a school? Uh, but it turns out you can, because when you call a hospital outstanding, it doesn't mean every single bit of care is outstanding, but it means it's a very well-led organisation. They learn from their mistakes. And I think most people in the NHS think it's been a success. But I proposed this idea to my civil servants at the Department of Health, and uh, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I met every week, I said, well, what's getting, how are we doing with this Ofsted idea? And, and, and eventually... Um, I said, I don't think you really like this idea. And after about eight of these meetings, the permanent secretary, no less, so the most senior civil servant in the Department of Health, said, well, the trouble is, Jeremy, we tried this before under Labour and it failed. And I said, thank you for telling me. I didn't know that. Um, and then we said, well, why did it fail? And we looked into it. And the reason it failed was because... Um, the ratings that hospitals were given, they called it the star system, were basically decided on ministerial priorities, so no one in the system liked it. And so the, re the reason Ofsted works for schools is because it's what parents want and it's what schools think is right, and it's at arm's length from ministers. So we created that independence. But it took a long time. So my, my feeling is you want more independent thinking from civil servants around you if you want better decisions. And um, so... I think uh, that's, the, that's a better approach, a more healthy approach. And do you work in the civil service? Yeah. And what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know your name, remember, so uh, you can say what you like. I know, but I think my department, I'm very easily <laughs> <laughs> OK. I think, uh, I think we know the answer to the question, then. <laughs> OK, yes, the fellow right over there. Um, so 2015, Boris, who is then mayor of London. Yeah. Uh, yes, how, many, how many other people was he contacting around that time of David Cameron's cabinet? I think you know there were people running <laughs> below the radar. Uh, I wouldn't call them leadership campaigns. It was sort of sounding out of colleagues, that kind of thing. Um, you know, that does happen in politics. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's part of how the system works. It doesn't mean that he was plotting to overthrow David Cameron, but it's just, uh, it, it happens in all parties. It happens, I'm sure it's happening uh, in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party now. It's just, I'm afraid it is just part of how, how politics works. Well, do you think that's particularly uh, problematic? Yeah, the more you say, the more it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that was, he knows what's going to happen and he's preparing for it. I mean, I'm not saying it, good I mean, on him. It wasn't exactly. a sort of, um, I've, I've got a great campaign going, join my team. It wasn't that sort of, it was more of a drink. Uh, probably to see whether I would say, Boris, you'd be a fantastic Prime Minister. I'm with you all the way if you ever put your hat in the ring. I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was probably the purpose of the drink. <laughs> What's he like to go for a drink with Boris? 
Um, do you know there's absolutely no difference from, you know, Boris at PMQs? Well, yeah, uh, I mean, come on now. You yes, I mean, what are you drinking? What is your gin and tonic? I mean, red wine or, you know, I'm bombardiers. I mean, anyway, uh, well, you know, how, how, how are the family? Does he, does he do small talk like that? Um, he, I think... You know, you must have had a few drinks with him. How would you know otherwise, Matt? Uh, that, was, that was pretty close. <laughs> oh, before we go, the thing I forgot to ask you is this advert in, is it Norway or Finland? You seen this? Oh, yes. The Santa. Has anyone seen yes. this? So, there's an advert for a postal service in Norway or Finland, and they're celebrating 60 years of homosexuality being decriminalised. And it's a lovely advert where Santa um, kisses... Um, a, a man, a man, and it, but the guy has been like a, I was going to say like um, he's like a kid in like Santa's. I'm making this sound really bad. Basically, <laughs> he sees Santa, and then as years go by, he keeps seeing Santa. And then eventually, basically, him and Santa fall in love. It's a very sweet love story. But the guy really looks like you. <laughs> See, I thought if I'm going to do a second job, if I do some TV role in Finland, no one's ever going to know. And um, I've been completely outed by in all sorts of ways. <laughs> uh, yes, that was uh, that was a bit of a surprise seeing that one. Because you've got to look it up. Because the first take, I mean, it really, really looks look like me. Yeah, except I've got a beard, haven't I? But, uh, it does look like me. That's quite a cool thing, isn't it? That's like because yeah. the guy. Well, Guys, you guys are hunk. Like, he's a good person to look like. Thank you. But obviously not quite me, I think, is the, uh, the sense of that. Yeah. This has been so wonderful, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Before we go tonight, ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge thank you to the wonderful Jeremy Hunt! Well, there you go, Jeremy Hunt. What an absolute gentleman. And there are certain guests in the history of the show, and I think Tessa Jowell's one of them, that have just a kind of calmness about them that is infectious. And I mean that in a really positive way. It's that they bring a certain energy, and then you find yourself finding their rhythm. And Jeremy Hunt is just unfailingly polite and decent, very thoughtful, very honest about the things that he's been wrong about in the past or the decisions that he got wrong. And I really like that philosophy about politics that obviously you have to be guided by good intentions and know what you're doing. But you do have to be philosophical about the things that you get wrong and be honest about how you would do things differently in future. And, and almost in a way, um, you can sense that he was quite free of a lot of, not of all the pressure, because of course, journalists outside your house and everything else brings a pressure to the people around you, and that's different. But he seems to have, and seems to have always had, in a way, the right attitude for a top-ranked politician, which is to be slightly, um, I guess, not above it, because that's not the right way to describe it, but just has, a, has the correct appraisal of what politics is. And as he said, it's not about, you know, your status at any one point isn't necessarily a reflection of how good you are. Um, that it is chaos, and that he, in a way, embraces that. And I just thought there were so many wonderful bits, some great stories, of course. I mean, it's so funny to think of leading major cabinet-level politicians getting selfies in certain places. I really... Because that's what I would do. 
And I hope the rest of them do it as well. And I think they're in positions of authority, but they're also human beings, and they never know how long they're going to be in positions of authority for. And I just found at so many points, he avoids the mistakes that lesser politicians would make. And the moment when he says, you know, and I was made health secretary, I didn't know anything about it. Now, we all know that. We know that a lot of cabinet ministers come into a brief with no prior experience. And, and they don't necessarily need that because they're the political voice uh, in that brief. They don't have to be a qualified doctor. And it's kind of lesser politicians make the mistake of trying to make out they are an expert on day one. Um, and that must be hugely insulting to the people that work in those areas. So I just think he brings the right approach. He understands what the role of a politician is. And I think so many forget that sometimes. And I think that's one of his great strengths. And just such a thoughtful, decent, relaxed, per relaxed in the right way. Obviously, really intense about politics. And the answers I thought, particularly to the audience questions showed, he is still absolutely on top of that brief. Now, he's chair of the select committee that holds that brief to account. But nevertheless, that isn't someone that just moved on. That is someone who's totally passionate about health. Uh, and you get the sense that it would be the same about any brief he'd have held for that amount of time. And I just think that's so inspiring for so many people to hear. Because sometimes when politicians get moved around, they don't necessarily retain that, that, that passion, that focus. So there was so much to enjoy. And of course, you can't help when he was the last person to really try and stop Boris Johnson in a meaningful way, there was no way Jeremy Corbyn was going to win that election. So Jeremy Hunt was the last person who could have really conceivably been Prime Minister instead of uh, the current incumbent. You can't help the whole time you're thinking, this guy actually came. Obviously, the, the vote amongst the membership was, was clearly in favour of Boris, but this guy came very close to becoming Prime Minister and how different the tone of the leadership of this country would have been, let alone the tone of the leadership of, of the Conservatives and how different things would have been. But he's also very generous towards his opponents, um, not just individuals, but in general. And I think that's uh, obviously uh, that strikes a chord, I think, with the principle behind this podcast. So it was, a, it was a great night. Thank you to all of you that came. You can get tickets for future shows at mattford.com slash live. So just to remind you of those future shows in a couple of weeks' time, the last show of the year, the 20th of December at the Duchess Theatre with live music from the fantastic MP4, the cross-parliamentary rock band, uh, Rosanna Allen Khan, Labour's Rosanna Allen Khan, absolute star, not just of the Labour Party of British politics, and Jacob Rees-Mogg. That's all of them live on Monday, the 20th of December. Then in the new year, January starts with two heavyweight Labour guests, Neil Kinnock on the 10th of January. I cannot wait for that. And on the 24th of January, I'm delighted to announce that Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, will be on the show. I've been trying to get Angela on for a while. We, we did agree a, a, a couple of years ago, maybe more than a couple of years ago, and then I got the date mixed up and <laughs> I'd mistakenly booked her for a birthday. So suddenly she couldn't make it that night. But I am so excited because I think Angela Rayner is someone with a huge amount of talent and a voice unlike anyone else really on the Labour front bench. And uh, there's something very, very exciting about Angela Rayner, I think. So I'm thrilled that she's coming on the show. So Labour's former leader, Neil Kinnock. 
an era-defining politician on Monday the 10th of January, and on the 24th, the current deputy leader, Angela Rayner, a current star, and someone whose star is absolutely on the rise, someone with a huge future, no question about it, and someone who already has made a huge impact at the dispatch box, even in the short amount of time that she's already been an MP and a, and a frontline Labour politician. So, tickets for all those shows are at mattford.com slash live, and I'll be announcing guests for February, March, and the other dates in due course. In the meantime, Merry Christmas. I hope you're enjoying uh, Advent. Um, I hope you've got a chocolate Advent calendar or a novelty one of some sort. Thank you for downloading this. Please spread the word, leave a review on iTunes, buy tickets to the live shows, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.